The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here, and it is good to be with you. Uh, I'm glad that we can come together and we can uh, sing and pray and come to God's word. And uh, the portion of his word that we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Romans 9. Uh, we're continuing in our series in Romans. And this morning we are taking up almost the entire chapter of Romans 9. Uh, there are only 33 verses. We're going to deal with 29 of them this morning. So um, it's a little bit longer passage. But uh, if you've been with us, you remember that just last week in Romans 8, we heard at the end of Romans 8 a wonderful promise that there is nothing in life and that there is nothing in the life to come. There's nothing that we can see or that is unseen. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we heard at the end of Romans 8 last week, this wonderful promise, this confidence that we can have that we are secure in Christ. In some ways, last week we hit the, the highest peak of Romans, right? This beautiful promise, this wonderful confidence that we can have. And as we maybe come down off the mountaintop, we might start to wonder, okay, this wonderful promise that has been made to us, if God's promise is so strong and nothing can separate us, what about Israel? Because they had the promises of God. What about them? Well, that's what Paul is taking up in Romans 9. And so if you would follow along, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people... I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are in need of your grace and mercy. We need you to um, work and move in our midst. We need your spirit to open our eyes and to soften our hearts. We need your spirit to work in and through the one who stands before your word. Father, allow my words to honor you. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in our midst so that our hearts would uh, cling to your grace and we would know your mercy. And so we ask that you would meet with us now. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I will help you bear this burden. If by life or death, I can help to protect you, I will. You have my sword, you have my bow, you have my axe. Gondor will see it done. Now these are the words that are spoken at the Council of Elrond in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. If you're familiar with that story, you know it's about this uh, little hobbit named Frodo who has the ring of power and he is set off on a journey to destroy the ring of power and he has to go into the most wicked and evil place in all of Middle Earth. He has to go into Mordor and take the ring up to Mount Doom and drop it into the fiery furnace and extinguish evil from Middle Earth. But he doesn't know the way. He's a hobbit. He's small. He's weak. He doesn't know how to get to Mount Doom. And so there he stands at the Council of Elrond before wizards and elves and dwarves and men. And he says, I do not know the way. And so one by one, a wizard and an elf and a dwarf and men, they come to Frodo and they promise to go with him. They promise 
to protect him. They say, you have my bow, my axe, my sword, my life. If you've seen the movie, it is a wonderful scene of hope. It's a wonderful scene of hope as each member of the fellowship promises to come to Frodo's aid, promises to be with him on his mission. Promises are powerful. They're powerful because with promise comes hope and expectation. But promises are also risky. Promises are risky because they're tied to the one making the promise. And and we have to wonder when a promise is made, can this person be trusted? Do they have the strength to see their promise through to the very end? Well, if you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, you know that one of those who made that promise to give of his very life if needed for the protection of Frodo, one who made this promise to help protect him and care for him, he broke that promise. Boromir, one of the men, instead of protecting Frodo, he attacked him and sought to take the ring for himself. And in that moment... The promise failed. In that moment, that promise that was filled with such hope, it failed. And that's the risk that we take when we hear and receive a promise. What if it fails? What if the person, the one making the promise, what if they can't see it through? And we know what this is like, don't we? Because we've experienced people going back on their promise, right? A parent, a friend, a spouse who has promised to love, to care for us, to be there for us, but but in our time of need, the promise failed. And if you you experience experience enough enough of those promises, it can make us skeptical of anything, even the promise of God, right? I mean, last week we heard this beautiful promise that we are perfectly secure in Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We heard this beautiful promise, but then we wonder, hadn't Israel heard promises as well? We look and we see how Israel, the Old Testament people of God, the ones who had been given the promise, they had rejected the Messiah to come. When we look at them and see that they don't receive Jesus as the Messiah, we can start to wonder, did God's promises fail them? And if they failed them, could could they fail us? And that's what Paul is addressing in Romans 9. In verses 1 through 5, Paul recounts how Israel Israel hadn't received the Christ, the promised Messiah. And this is difficult. This is heart-wrenching for Paul. He actually says he has sorrow and anguish. Sorrow and anguish because Israel, though they had the covenants and the law, though they had worship and promises, though the patriarchs and the promise of the Messiah came through them, they didn't receive him. And so anticipating the question, Paul says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. No, what Paul is telling us is that God's promises have not failed. Israel's rejection of Jesus doesn't mean that there's a problem with the promise. 
You see, instead of us thinking that the promise maybe failed, instead, Paul wants us to see that his promises continue. His promises continue. And they continue even though some of those who had first heard the promises have turned away from them. They continue because we have to see that not all Israel is truly Israel. That's what he says in verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, so to help us understand this, Paul gives us two illustrations. Two illustrations of the patriarchs, right? We have Abraham and we have Isaac. And what he shows us is that Abraham, who had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, that though he had two sons, really the promise that is made to Abraham that his offspring will outnumber the the stars of the sky and the, the sand on the seashore, though the promise was made to Abraham about his descendants, that promise was really only about Isaac and not about Ishmael. Paul goes on. He shows us not just was this the promise made to Abraham, but also Isaac. Isaac himself had two sons, right? Jacob and Esau. Jacob, we're told, I loved. Esau, I hated. Okay, before we go on, let's just acknowledge, okay, the Esau I hated, this is an idiom, okay? Almost every uh, commentator I consulted and theologian I looked at, this is an idiom. It's an idiom that makes sense out of not being chosen. That, that's, that's the sense it's getting. It's about choosing, Okay, it's similar to the way Jesus in Luke 14 says that if anyone is to come after him and follow him, we must love him and hate our father and mother. Now we know Jesus doesn't literally mean we must hate our father and mother, right? Because to do that, that means that we would be breaking the fifth commandment to honor them. Right? What Jesus is talking about is that in order to love him, to follow him, our love for him must be so great that every other love looks like the opposite of love. And similarly, God loved Jacob by pursuing him, and he hated Esau by not. You see, the ultimate point that Paul is trying to make here is to show us that though in Israel their promises were made to Israel and that all of Israel was ethnically Jewish, not all Israel was spiritually Jewish. That there is Israel of the flesh and Israel of the spirit. And the promise is made to spiritual Israel. That there were those who descended from Abraham who are not actually of Abraham. That there were those who heard the promise, but, but they are not children of the promise. You see, what Paul is telling us is that God's promise hadn't failed because the promise wasn't that all Israel would be saved. No, instead, the promise continues. It continues because his promise is a promise of sovereign mercy. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, about God's sovereign mercy. And both those words are vitally important, sovereign and mercy. Sovereign, because the passage is clear, that God chooses his people and those to whom he is merciful. Right? We actually heard in verse 11, when Paul talks about Jacob and Esau, when he talks about their mother, Rebekah, he says, though they were not yet born... 
and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. You see, what Paul is telling us is that before Jacob and Esau were even born, God sovereignly chose to place his saving love on Jacob and not Esau. Now, I realize that in saying that, it may not sit well with all of us. Right? We might be sitting there, you might be sitting there, and you might be wondering, like, how is that fair? How is that fair? That God chooses who's part of his family? That he chooses who is forgiven? That he chooses who he has mercy on? I mean, how is that fair? If you're not wondering it, there are people around you in your spheres who would be if they heard what I just said. And this isn't just something that's new to us. Because Paul, anticipating that very question, asks in verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? In other words, is God being unfair in the way in which he chooses Isaac over Ishmael and the way he chooses Jacob over Esau? And how does Paul respond? By no means. He goes on in verse 18 to say, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, what Paul is telling us is that the dispensing of mercy and grace is dependent upon God and not upon us. That's why later he's going to use the illustration of the potter and the clay, right? The, the potter has authority over the clay, has sovereignty, if you will, over the clay. And the potter could take that piece of clay, that lump of clay, and make it into a beautiful vase, right? Into, into a chalice, into a mug, into a plate. Or the potter could just leave the lump of clay where it is. Or the potter could dispose of the clay, right? The potter has sovereign authority over that lump of clay. And here's the thing, y'all. We're the clay. I know we like to think that we're the potter, right? Like we're just molding our lives as we see fit. And we, we can like orient our lives around anything. That, but, but we're not the potter. We're the clay. And if God determines to enact justice against us, justice that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion, then that's his right. And if he decides to be merciful, mercy that comes from him alone, mercy because of what Christ has done on the cross and his resurrection, then that's his prerogative. We have no right to demand God's mercy. As one pastor put it, nobody has a claim upon God's mercy. If they did, it would no longer be mercy. Since the wages of sin is death, you remember that's from Romans 6, 23. Since the wages of sin is death, the shock is not that God does not extend his compassion to everyone, but that he extends it to anyone. Hear that again. The shock because of what we have done and what we are deserving because of our sin, the shock is not that God does not extend his compassion to everyone, but that he extends it to anyone. You see, friends, the truth and, and the hard truth is this, that what is fair and what we have earned is justice and punishment. 
if God was fair, what we would deserve is death. You see, the truth is, is we don't want God to be fair. At least not to us. What we want is mercy and compassion and grace. And God dispenses that grace and compassion and mercy on whomever he wills. I heard it described this way once. Uh, I want you to imagine a wealthy woman comes uh, to the local high school, you know, PH, Cave, Hymn Valley, Glenbur, wherever, okay, CCA, um, comes to the local high school. And all the, the seniors are gathered in the auditorium, and this wealthy woman, she, she grabs 25 of the students and takes them into the side room, and she tells them that, that she's going to pay for all of their tuition, right? Uh, room, board, books, tuition, everything. She's going to cover it. It doesn't matter where they go to school. They could go to an Ivy League school or a two-year school, public or private, right? It, it could be the most expensive or the cheapest school in the country, but she's going to pay for it. It's an incredibly gracious thing, very generous. Now, I want you to imagine that this wealthy woman, she actually has the ability not just to pay for 25 seniors, but the entire senior class. Now, simply because she's able to pay for all of the tuition of all of those seniors, does that mean she's obligated to simply because she pays for a few? Well, of course not, right? Of course not. It would be wrong for one of the other seniors to stand there and go, wait a minute. Where's my money? Where's my tuition? You're paying for theirs. Well, you should be paying for mine. No, 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 no. We, that person doesn't understand generosity or mercy or grace. She's not being unfair to those she doesn't help because she's under no obligation to assist any at all. The fact that she assists some is a reflection of her mercy. And y'all, the same is true of God. He has mercy on whom he wills. His mercy is not given. And it, or his mercy is given. It is not ours to demand. So then the question must come up in our minds. Because we love our autonomy and we love our uh, individual um, understandings of our control over our lives, we must go, well, well, then certainly he can't hold us culpable, right? If God is perfectly sovereign over grace and over mercy and over this world and over our lives, then surely he can't hold us culpable for our sin. Paul actually takes that up in verse 19. Did you see it? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And so you hear the thinking, right? If, if God's sovereign mercy and grace is there, then perhaps that annuls our responsibility over our sin. It's not our fault. That the blame of sin could fall actually on God, not on us. But actually, the Bible is clear. That though God is sovereign over our salvation, we are responsible for our sin. In fact, do you remember in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, he's giving his speech at Pentecost, and he says to the crowd, he says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So you hear that. This was part of God's plan, the definite foreknowledge and plan of God. You crucified and killed. 
you're responsible. And that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. In verse 22, we're told, God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God has patience with those objects of wrath. This shows that God doesn't make evil people evil. Instead, he bears with them. Yes, he hardens hearts, we're told, but this is akin to Romans 1. In Romans 1, you remember we are told that God will hand the sinful over to their sin and the wicked over to their wickedness. As John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, put it, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. And the credit is his because of his mercy, his grace, his kindness. His mercy that was for the Jews and the Gentiles, for those of Israel and the nations. And Paul points that out by quoting two Old Testament prophets. Did you see that? He quotes Isaiah and Hosea. First, Isaiah, he says that, that there will be a remnant of Israel that is saved. You see, Israel, those who first heard the promise, they're not abandoned. God's mercy will fall on some of them. But then he says the mercy of God also falls on the nations. He quotes Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Y'all, this is beautiful. This is beautiful because what Paul is telling us in quoting Hosea is that the promise that God made first to Abraham, that the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, that his blessing would extend to every corner of the earth, that that promise continues. And we are recipients of that promise. I don't know all of y'all's background and story, but I'm betting the majority of, majority of us are not ethnically Jewish. And yet the promise is for us. It's not just for those who first heard the promise, but that promise that those who never heard, it's now declared over them. That those who were once far off are brought near, that God's mercy comes, so that those who were once not his people are now called sons and daughters of God. His promise extends to us even to us, his mercy and his grace, his sovereign grace over you. And friends, when we know this grace, when we realize and reflect on the mercy that extends to us, you know what this should do to us? It should humble us. It should humble us. Now, I know that when we talk about um, election and predestination, God's choosing, it can be thrown at us, you Presbyterians, you Presbyterians, you guys are so smug and arrogant, right, and haughty, and, you know, we're the chosen. Maybe that's not what they said, <laughs> you know, that voice. Uh, uh, but, but you feel that, don't you? I mean, that's been cast at me before. And sometimes it's right that that's been cast at us, because the truth is, is that sometimes that's how we've talked about this doctrine, with arrogance and haughtiness. But the truth is, is that if we truly understand 
and know this doctrine, it shouldn't cause us to be haughty. It should cause us to be humble. Humble because we know that God didn't look in to our hearts when we were sinful and rebellious and see this like little ember of fire that just needed to be stoked and flamed and then it would erupt into grace and mercy. No, he didn't look upon us that way because there was no ember to be found. There was no glimmer of light, right? We've already heard in Romans 3 that every aspect of our being has been affected by the fall, that that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that we had turned away from God. No, he doesn't look and find goodness because there was no goodness there. And he doesn't look down the hallway of history and look to all the amazing things we'll one day do for the kingdom of God. No, because we know that apart from his work in our lives, there's nothing we can contribute. And so it should actually humble us. Humble us knowing that nothing in us has caused God to be merciful to us. Paul makes this clear when he says it depends not on human will or exertion. You see, God isn't merciful because of who we are. He's merciful because of who he is. And so we are humble. But we're not just humble in response to this. We're also sorrowful. We have sorrow over those who don't know this mercy. Right? We heard Paul say it. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. When Paul looks at those in Israel who had rejected the promise and had not clung to it, he doesn't look at them with disdain and hatred. He doesn't scold them and say, what's wrong with you? Just believe, be better. Because he knows that they can't. He knows what's wrong in sin. Instead of having hatred or disdain for the unbeliever, Paul has sorrow over their unbelief. He's in anguish. He longs for them to know God's mercy. He has compassion. For I could, he writes, wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. His compassion for them. I wonder if that's our hearts. When we look at those around us who don't believe, when we look at the world around us, is it disdain or compassion that motivates us? Is it hatred or sadness that causes us to move towards them? Is compassion in our hearts? Is it in mine? You see, we are to have hearts of compassion, sorrow for those who do not know. Humble because we are the ones who do and thankful for God's mercy. That's the last part. You know, there are many things we could say about responding to God's mercy, but but humility and sadness and thankfulness are some of those. And we should be thankful. Thankful that because of God's mercy, he didn't give us what we deserve, but gave us instead grace. I mean, what we have earned is death, but he has instead given us life. What we deserve is to be left to ourselves, but instead he has brought us into his family. What we deserved was punishment, but he gave us mercy. Y'all, how can we not be thankful at that? Thankful that he has done what none of us could have. What only he could have done. 
thankful that his promise, it had not failed. And it does not fail, but instead it continues. It continues through Christ, through his death and resurrection. He will bring grace and mercy and save. And so those who know that salvation, if you know Christ and you are trusting in him as those who know that salvation and that grace and that sovereign mercy, we are to be humble. Humble that he would save even us. We would have sorrow and compassion for those who are in need of his grace. And we would have hearts that overflow with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for his mercy. Friends, that is the promise that God has made. It is the promise of long ago and it continues today. And it does not fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that today and tomorrow and forevermore, Christ is the same. We thank you that he is the beginning and the end, that he is the amen. That that in him, the promises that you have made, they are certain. And so we pray that we would not doubt your promises, but instead we would be thankful that your promise of sovereign mercy has come to even us. And that you would humble us, that you would help us to look upon our world with sadness and anguish, and that you would fill us with thanksgiving. Because you have not left us to ourselves, but you have been merciful and gracious, kind and compassionate, our loving God who saves. Father, let us rest in that promise today and forevermore. And all of God's people said together, Amen.